Please turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James 1, verses 2 through 8. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith develops patience. But let patience perfect its work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without criticism, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without wavering. For he who wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed with the wind. Let not that man think he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. One of my favorite themes to preach about over the years has been learning how to rejoice in suffering, glorying in the fact that God's causing all things to work together for good in our lives in spite of the present circumstances, rejoicing in confidence that God will finish what he's begun in my life. But I have to admit that Almost every time I've preached on that theme, God has prepared me for that sermon by bringing new trials into my life and turning up the heat beyond what I think I can bear. And the reality holds true for this week. As I prepared, I've been through some rough, stormy waters, some fiery trials this week, even yesterday and this morning. The temptation to doubt God, to be double-minded and unstable like the shifting waves of the water is very real. Peter, rather James, the Old Testament book of Proverbs foreshadows some of James' thinking. In fact, I think he was so steeped in the book of Proverbs that he wrote like Solomon in composing those Proverbs and Maxims. But James comes out of the gate with a bold and confident command, my brothers count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. In this morning's bulletin, you'll find an overview of the epistle of James for further study and meditation. I call it 12 distinguishing traits of the perfect and complete Christian. James, in this letter, paints a portrait of the perfect and complete Christian, the one who has been finally conformed to the likeness and image of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And I hope that you will see that by speaking against our sinful tendencies in all these areas, he's pointing us to our Savior substitute, who without ever sinning, exemplified these traits for us that we might follow in his steps. 
We are putting on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It is his likeness that we see when we gaze into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty, of which James speaks later on in this chapter. We don't want to be like the man that looks in the mirror and sees smudges on his face or his tie askew and walks away forgetting what he looks like without making the adjustments. We come to this mirror of the word, the perfect law of liberty. We gaze into it and we meditate upon it and we see the righteousness of God and, and especially as it's displayed in the life of Christ. And we're convicted of our shortcomings and our transgressions. But we want, by the grace of God, to make adjustments so that we can make progress toward this ultimate goal of complete perfection and, com and likeness in the image of Christ. James here is pointing us to an ultimate goal. Jay Adams had a popular commentary called the whole Christian or the, the, the telos Christian, the teleos Christian, the whole and perfect and complete Christian. And I'm reminded of his exhortation there that James isn't saying be glad that you're sad. He's saying rejoice in the bigger picture. Rejoice in what God is doing. You know that in the midst of your trials and tears that God's at work and we must be confident and patient in the midst of these stormy seas. Thomas Manton likens our life as a life of navigating the seas and the pilot, the governor of the ship, displays his patience and, and wisdom in the midst of the storm, and so should we reflect that character. We'll look at this uh, under three basic requirements in order to become a perfect and complete Christian. The first is joyful acceptance of trials, the second is patience, patient endurance to the end. And finally, prayers of faith for divinely bestowed wisdom. These are three basic requirements if we're going to progress toward perfection and completeness in Christ. Jesus said, be ye therefore, for, that God has said, be ye therefore perfect as I am perfect. We're to be setting our sights on this goal of moral integrity and perfection. That's the goal, never attainable in this present life. But ultimately, by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, as God molds and shapes us and tempers us through the trials of life, we will be conformed to that perfect image of Christ. We will be radiant in glory. In the moment of our last breath, Scripture teaches that we are made perfect in righteousness. We're gathered together here this morning in the presence of myriads of angels and they're in festive assembly and in the presence of the Son of God, of course, but also of the spirits of just men made perfect. When you breathe your last, you will be completely and finally made perfect and glorified, awaiting the resurrection of your body, which will also be a perfect tent in which we dwell for all eternity. So what does God require of us in this process 
of becoming a perfect and complete Christian. Listen to James, the half-brother of Jesus, that brother who didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry until he saw him resurrected and gloriously triumphant. And God used him in wonderful ways in the leadership of the church at Jerusalem. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. James uses a word here that means to lead our thoughts. It's easy to let our thoughts run away with us and we get anxious and worried and we lose our head. We get crazy sometimes and panicked and frantic and our thoughts go off in all different directions. But James says to us, take the reins and direct that horse. Those thoughts need to be led and directed consciously through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do what I like to call self-talk. I learned this, first of all, from a great preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones years ago in commenting on Psalm 42. The idea of just taking ourselves by the scruff of the neck and saying, my soul, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Stop and think. Hope in God. Resolve to continue to praise Him. Get your thinking back on course. Sometimes when we're driving the automobile and we get distracted, we start to veer to the side. I drive a school bus part-time, and it's one of these newer buses with this newfangled technology. It's called uh, collision mitigation technology. I have a little box sitting on my dash called my wingman. And it tells me when I'm going over the speed limit. It tells me when I'm veering to the right and crossing a line. Or if I'm getting too close to a vehicle, it will automatically put on the brakes very hard if I get too close to a vehicle in front of me. It's happened a couple of times, and my students have blamed me uh, uh, for doing it deliberately. But I said, that wasn't me. That was my automatic brakes watching out for me. We have something more glorious than that GPS system, that wingman system, that collision mitigation system. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us and to prompt us. And sometimes we are jolted with the trials and troubles that come our way. Like a warning sign. So he says, count it all joy. Literally, lead your thoughts along the paths of joy. Determine that you're going to get out of this mode of murmuring and complaining and rejoice. Not just with a false plastic smile and grin. Praise the Lord anyway. I don't know why, but praise the Lord anyway. We should lead our thoughts to view trials as a cause for pure joy when we encounter many and various kinds of trials. We must seek to be like Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In the garden, he said to his disciples, My soul is distressed and sorrowful to the point of death. As he prayed and wept, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. Jesus, yet in that situation, led his thoughts along to the Father's purposes. Glorify me as I have glorified your name. 
Consider the lifelong suffering and sorrow of Jesus as he encountered various trials and temptations. Psalm 88 teaches us that his whole life from birth to death was a life of affliction and troubles. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They come around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. And as I said, it culminated at Gethsemane and Golgotha. That dark and looming cloud of divine wrath threatened him all through his 33 years of life here on earth. I dare to say that Jesus had night terrors as a child that none of us can imagine. Did he awaken at night with night terrors to be comforted by Mary and Joseph? I don't see why not. I think that his mission in this world was to become sin for us, to bear the wrath of God for us. And I'm not suggesting that there weren't moments of levity. He made, people, he made his disciples laugh by poking fun at the Pharisees. He attended the wedding at Canaan and, and, turned the, and miraculously turned the water into wine to celebrate with those who were glad in that, in that uh, week of celebration. But Jesus knew trials and tribulations. He knew how to lead his thoughts toward joy. I was planning to read this later near the end of the sermon, but um, it's just on my mind right now. You know, in um, John 17, if I can find it. That's why I put my marker there. Here's Jesus literally leading his thoughts away from despair and murmuring and complaining. After all, it's trials and troubles that evoke that spirit of murmuring and complaining most typically. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, he will give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me. And now, O oh Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. It was for the glory set before him that he endured the humiliation and shame of being rejected by his people and crucified to death by the Roman soldiers. He held out that joy as an incentive to persevere. Sinless though he was, he had to strive mightily to rejoice and to count it all joy in the face of these trials. As Jay Adams once quipped, James doesn't say, be glad that you're sad. His book, A Thirst for wholeness, I couldn't recall that title earlier, a thirst for holiness is a very helpful guide to understanding James. James is saying that you can face trials with joy. 
God doesn't command you to feel joyful in trials. You can't turn your feelings on and off like hot and cold water from a faucet. Emotions aren't under your direct, direct control. James doesn't say feel joyful about the trial. But consider it all joy. Lead your thoughts into the paths of joyful contemplation. Now, there's something you can do whether you feel like it or not. Indeed, this is not just good advice, but something you must learn to do. James lays down a command, Adams says. The word consider is the key to handling both inner and outer responses to trials. The word expresses what you must learn to do inside. It has to do with your thought processes. When we handle trials poorly, it is because of poor inter inner responses to them. Trouble comes and you get angry, gloomy, or whatever, just as you have learned to do. It's what you consider the trials to be that controls your feelings. And that is explicitly where God tells you to focus your attention on your thoughts, not your feelings. Learn to consider the trial a ground for rejoicing. Don't allow the slightest negative thought about it to enter your mind. See this as God's world under his sovereign control and everything that happens as a means of honoring him and bringing good to his children. Notice the word consider a bit more closely. It's a most revealing term that in its primary usage means not consider but lead. Its secondary usage, consider, count, regard, comes from the idea of leading one's self to think one way or another, a fact that is altogether important to an understanding of James' command. Thinking about God's trials, um, thinking about trials God's way generates proper inner and outer responses. As you begin to see trials more and more from God's viewpoint, eventually you will reach the place where you too can rejoice in them. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes a deliberate act to wrench your mind out of the pagan cesspool of thought into which we have allowed it to wade, seize control of the reins, and lead your mind to the pure, refreshing waters of life. In other words, in any and all trials, if you deliberately take the time and make a prayerful effort to consider them as God does, you will reach the place where you look on them entirely as a blessing and rejoice. But you will not rejoice until you learn to consider trials the way God sees them. I'm going to quit quoting this long quotation from Adams and just give you a brief word of testimony. I've grown over the years. I've learned how to be a little more patient than I used to be. And my wife can testify to that, but she can also testify that even at this point in my life, and as was displayed yesterday under a, an overwhelming burden of trial and trouble, I finally broke and said some things I wish I hadn't said. Treated her a little bit roughly and unkindly, for which she's forgiven. She's a, a marvelous woman. God has given her such grace and patience with me. The word translated various sorts, Adam says, literally means many colored, variegated. The power of this inner dynamic is not restricted to a certain class of trials. 
God, the master painter, works in the entire spectrum of problems through which you pass in this life. He is busy making you into a new person by the fiery reds of affliction, the icy blues of sorrow, the murky browns of failure, and the sickly yellows of illness and disease. God is at work on his palette is every hue and intensity of the rainbow. And I love to think about that. We need to rejoice when we're persecuted for Christ's sake, but as Manton said in his commentary on this, Christ isn't unconcerned about your everyday trials that come not because of persecution. It may just be in God's providence you're afflicted with an illness that is just daunting and discouraging to deal with. There's a book I love. It's a treatise by Thomas Goodwin, a great Puritan preacher. It's titled The Heart of Christ or The Heart of Jesus in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. He's above it all now. All his trials and suffering have passed. He is certified and glorified for having faithfully navigated the trials and troubles of his life heavenward as he secured our salvation. But he in glory is not unmindful of you in your daily trials and your troubles. So joyfully accept these trials as a part of God's providence and purpose in your life as we know that our testing produces patience or endurance or patient endurance. We can, we can do this with resolute focus on the goal. And this leads us to the second requirement that God places upon us in this lifelong process of becoming perfect and complete Christians. As Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this, according to James, means patient endurance to the end. Now, I was reflecting on this even this morning, and I want to be clear about this goal that we have and this goal that God has in our suffering. Look at these verses again. We count it all joy, knowing that the trying of your faith develops patience. But even patience isn't the goal. The goal of our suffering is not merely that we would become more patient, but that we would become perfect and complete in Christ. I like to remind myself that the word endurance literally in the Greek means to stand under. I'm going to stand under and bear this trial. And it evokes a, a memory of a scene from a biography that my wife and I listened to on an audio book recently. It's titled Unbroken. A World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. Perhaps you know the story of Louis Zamparini, an Olympic champion who slid into drunkenness and impoverished life and who came to faith in Christ. He, was, he spent time in a, in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. The plane had gone down and they were captured. And one of the punishments of the guards was to place this beam on his shoulder. And he had to stand under that as long as he could, under the threat of death. And he stood there, and he stood there, and he stood there, and finally crumbled. But it reminds us that enduring trials 
means literally to stand under them until God finishes the work he's begun. Can't help but think of Bezalel and Aholiel, craftsmen in the Old Testament under the leadership of Moses who were given skill and wisdom to do craftsmanship for preparing the temple or the tabernacle rather. You can read about them in in Exodus 31 and 35 and 36 and 38. These men and other skilled craftspersons who embroidered the hangings of the tabernacle were used by God to um, finish and complete the work of the tabernacle. If, If you think of it, if we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house of worship, like the stone temple of Jerusalem, it stands to reason that like the tabernacle in the wilderness, we're being fitted together like those planks in the tabernacle and the embroidery work that is embellishing the glory and the beauty of this life in heaven is something that we participate in. God has given us gifts to make life in our Christian community beautiful and uh, honoring to God. In um, one of the commentaries that I have depended on very much for this uh, sermon, Douglas J. Moo says that James's deep concern throughout the letter that believers respond to God's grace with sincere obedience suggests rather that the work here summarizes the many dimensions of the ideal Christian character. Mature translates the Greek word, and we would argue again for a stronger rendering. The word complete suggests the idea of wholeness and soundness in contrast, for instance, to ill health. Testing, James suggests, is intended to produce when when believers respond with confidence in God and determination to endure a wholeness of Christian character that lacks nothing in the panoply of virtues that define godly character. This concern for spiritual integrity and wholeness lies at the heart of James' concern, and he will come back to the matter again and again. I've given the outline in the bulletin for further study, and I have to admit, or I have to give credit to John MacArthur for the inspiration of that outline. He gives 12... um, Main, main headings to his outline, and I've developed it along those lines uh, just so that we can see the goal and look at each of these qualities of Christian character that James highlights for us. These are things that we should keep our minds on and think about as we're undergoing trial. I, I preached a sermon years ago uh, on this, and likened it to the SAT for juniors in high school who take this test in preparation for college. Um, This is a divinely appointed and infallible guide to the SAT, spiritual assessment tests for heavenly heaven readiness, also known as a guide to the SAT for dummies. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. To motivate us to prepare for God's spiritual assessment tests, 
which indicate the vitality of our faith and our fitness for heaven is the objective of my sermons in this book. And that leads us then to this other basic requirement of prayers of faith for divinely bestowed wisdom. We need to pray in faith, James says, not doubting, not wavering, for he who wavers is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, like Reuben of the Old Testament, who was unstable as water and did such immoral things. As a boy helping my grandparents and my father and friends on the farm, I learned how to plant a fence post to tamp it down securely so that it was established and secure and solid and immovable. Imagine planting a fence post in water. It's unstable. It, it will not hold. Matthew Henry, in his um, commentary on this, talked about Elijah later on in the chapter, or later on at the end of the book, uh, he said of Elijah, the original Greek in prayer, it, the original Greek is, in prayer he prayed. Elijah was a man like you and me, a man of like frailties and passions, and yet he prayed in faith and, and prayed for the rain to stop and for the rain to come. It's not enough to say a prayer, but we must pray in prayer. Our thoughts must be fixed, our desires firm and ardent, and our grace in exercise. And when we thus pray in prayer, we shall speed in prayer. Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and God heard him in, the plead in his pleading against an idolatrous, persecuting country. We too, like Elijah, must pray for wisdom. And I think we pray for wisdom in a general sense all the time. Paul says, I pray that, that God would give you the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of himself. We pray for wisdom in life's decisions. But in this context, I think James is saying, if you lack wisdom to know how to navigate the waters of your turbulent life, the storms of life, pray for specific wisdom to know how to respond and how to deal with it. This is what Jesus was doing in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, that, that prayer was not in the garden. It was in the upper room before they went out to the garden. And according to the uh, re uh, gospel record, but he says, I, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He prays for God to glorify him. He's been faithful. And recently I was convicted in thinking about Psalm uh, 13 that we sang and Psalm 71, that if Jesus held out the hope of glory and the joy set before him, the joy of that celebration when he ascended into heaven and was seated at his Father's right hand, if Jesus contemplated that great and glorious outcome in order to persevere through the trial here during his earthly life, how much more ought we to think about our glory, our joy, 
the joy that is set before us, one day it will all be over. We will be done with the trials and troubles of this life. But until then, we need, we need special wisdom to know how to navigate these stormy seas. Thomas Manton, in his commentary on this, talks about the patience of the governor of the ship, the ship's pilot, who's patient in the midst of the storm, and he so skillfully navigates the stormy waters with perfect calm and, and, and confidence. That's what we're praying for. We're praying. You know, an athlete exercises and pushes himself so that he can endure and run farther and lift more weight. No pain, no gain, says the athlete. We, too, know that strengthening and patient endurance comes through the trials and troubles of life. We need to pray that God, like Jesus, would increase our honor. Psalm 71, look at that. Lord, I want to obey you. I want to honor you. I want to humbly submit to these trials. In 1 Peter, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Don't be proud and think you can do it by yourself. Humble yourself and cast your cares upon the Lord. Ask Him for wisdom. Humble yourself. You know, so often we're so proud and we don't want to get help from anybody. We, we want to just do it ourselves. And one of the hardest things for us as we grow older is accepting help from our friends and family or the nurses under whose care we are, we are for a time. These prayers for wisdom will help us navigate the stormy seas of life. Let's pray. Lord, how we long to be whole and complete in Christ. How we long to be done with these trials and the temptations. Lord, we know that you don't tempt. But there are times when we're not watching and praying like Jesus commanded the disciples in the garden and we have fallen into temptation. We've compromised We've done things that we're ashamed of. We've said things that we, we wish we could take back. Lord, help us to count it all joy and give us the wisdom to navigate these stormy seas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.